In employer branding, there are so many ways to do the job. So many tactics, so many channels, so many platforms, so many tools, so many ways to find a way to put your message in front of the candidates and prospects that matter most to you. Now, because it's so complicated, because there's so many ways to do the job, it's very easy to make decisions as they come to you. It's like running through a maze. You're choosing left and right and left and right, each individual decision making perfect sense in its own space, completely justifiable. But it doesn't take long before you're headlong in a dead end. You're trapped in a cul-de-sac. How do you avoid these dead ends? Marcus and I have a couple of tricks that we like to use, and I'm calling them killer questions. These questions are designed to get at the heart of what you're trying to do. They're a little bit blunt, a little bit brutal, but 100% effective at helping you see this path is not going in the way I need it to go and allows you to turn around before things get too far. So enjoy this, the fourth episode of The Brand Plan, where Marcus and I get serious about some killer questions. You're listening to The Brand Plan, the podcast about the intersection of talent, brand, and strategy with your hosts, Marcus Body of 33 and James Ellis of Employer Brand Labs. Hey, Marcus. Hey, James. How's it going? Good, good. You're uh, having some noise situations over in London, I take it? Absolutely. The London Borough of Southwark have decided to repave my street, but hopefully they're going to let us get through the next half an hour or so without too many interruptions. But it's kind of them. It's kind of them. I mean, they Absolutely. they have they need employer brand help too. So maybe it's just it's a gifting kind. Big local employer. Absolutely. Have been a client of mine. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, who hasn't? Uh, you know what? That's well, yeah, separate, it's quicker yeah. to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So today, so yesterday we had, you know, last couple of conversations we've had um, really interesting about strategy. And today what I want to introduce is this idea I learned from a product manager at an old company where they talked about this idea of what they called the killer question. And I, from a marketing standpoint, how do you not love that? And it's this idea that, you know, when you do work, you kind of put the blinders on, you kind of get a little deeper and you get a little deeper and you're going to play with this and you're going to fiddle and you're going to fidget. And at some point, you've lost the plot and you don't know that you've lost the plot. And so what, and a killer question is good to kind of say, take a step back, yeah. think it through, where are you right now? And that's, I think that's what we should talk about today. Definitely. Sounds like a, a good topic for us to get into. And I think there are loads of questions like this in this kind of area. So yeah, totally. do you want to kick us off with one then? Where, yeah. where would you begin? I, my favorite is, is this thing you're doing going to attract a perfect hire or just an applicant? Ooh, good yeah. question. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think so much of what we do is just, you know, because we're stealing from marketing, because we're stealing from, it is about, because it's easier to measure, hey, 12,000 applicants is bigger than four, right? That's really easy to measure, but those four were amazing and those 12,000 were crap. That's hard to measure. Absolutely. So I think there's, there's a, I mean, there's a big thing sitting behind that, which is, do you know what the perfect applicant is? And, and really, that's going to be a killer thing before you can go anywhere near that question is, is do you have any kind of remotely sensible definition for actually the perfect applicant looks like this because if you don't know what that looks like then you don't even know if you're winning and sometimes you know that's the thing is you might be doing brilliantly but you have no way of proving it yeah and i i mean honestly most requisitions are fishing expeditions at best, right? The hire manager goes, I need someone who kind of does this thing, but I don't know what they can do and I don't know what other skills would be useful. So let's just write 4,000 bullets on a piece of paper, hand it to a recruiter, good luck kids, and let's see what we have. Let's see what we have. And they become fishing ex 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 expeditions. And to your point, 
if when it's fishing, you don't know what a good fish is. You don't know if are you hunting for shark or are you hunting for salmon. They're not the same. And you know, completely. It's and completely I think different. there's also a there's a thing that hiring managers do. I, I did a really interesting thing years ago. I did a project with a client where I helped work directly with the hiring managers to understand how they were thinking about job requisitions. And I remember I was working with this one guy and he wrote down his ideal candidate and then he stopped for a second and then he started adding more bullet points. And I said, well, why did you carry on there? And he said, well, I'd finished and it didn't look important enough. So he added in some things he didn't need yeah, because otherwise it, it, it just felt too short. And he was like, but this is a really important job. And I was like, no, no, if you'd handed that to the recruiter when you'd got your three bullet points on it, they could have done a much better job. You've just added on four requirements you don't need. Mm -hmm because you wanted it to look more important. What you've actually done is paint the recruiter into a corner and they're yeah. going to reject some people who might be brilliant for this yeah. because you didn't know when to stop. Yeah. And that's such a huge problem for talent acquisition is, is the line managers themselves very often don't have a very good definition of what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, my friend Katrina Kibben, uh, they do a lot of job posting stuff and their favorite question is when you're writing a job posting, yeah. what is the experience this person should have had to pre prepare them to be successful in this role. And nice. honestly, everything else after that is just footnotes, right? Completely, completely. I, I, I think there was, there was one I learned years ago, I was doing some work with Nestle, and they used to have a thing on the top of every single job description that asked, what is the point of this job in a sentence? And then in brackets, what would happen if we hired no one? And it was a really helpful, way of looking at the jobs to go yeah but what's this job really about and therefore what kind of person do you really need to do it because otherwise you can easily you know just start listing things that they're going to happen to do or that the last person to do it happened to do because they were good at yeah but that the next person in the role doesn't need to do and, exactly. and that's it's so easy to fall into that and if the line manager does that then talent acquisition don't stand a chance because you're essentially trying to hire the person who just quit and, and you can't hire them they've just quit no. So it's a huge problem. And I think, yeah, it, just asking yourself whether it's a macro scale of your business as a whole, do you know what good hiring would look like and how could you prove you've done it? Yeah. But even down to that micro level of individual job by job, do you know what the perfect person for this job looks like? Because otherwise you might be winning for all you know. You might be achieving the best possible thing that could have ever have happened, but you're not going to know until you have some sensible definition of, of what we mean by best. Yeah, and that's the lament of every good recruiter. I brought them exactly what they wanted. This person is going to be perfect. Their culture fit. They're Completely. really value add in every level. And the, and the hiring manager said, well, who else is out there? It's like, no, once you get the thing you're looking for, you stop. You don't, if you're looking for your car keys, you don't go and you find them. You don't go looking for other keys. You found the thing you're Absolutely. looking for. Absolutely. It's that famous thing of, oh, I found the ideal candidate, but I wonder if I can get the ideal candidate and has a helicopter license. And it's suddenly like there's this extra requirement that, that yeah. just isn't job critical and yet suddenly makes the job impossible. And, and you start doubting yourself. I think there's also in an awful lot of environments, you've got some challenging stakeholders who have rose tinted view of what brilliant looks like because they they were like uh, this happens a lot i notice with grad campaigns at professional services firms and you'll get a partner who says oh this year's entrants aren't as good as i was and sometimes you have to sort of push back and go you're not as good as you you, you think you remember yourself being yeah. you're not remembering all the things you used to get wrong and actually even out of your own class you were one of the better ones because all the people who don't work there anymore, you know, and, and it's so easy for them to get this weird idea about what they mean by quality. 
And then, you know, inevitably it's, oh, this, this talent acquisition haven't done a very good job. There must be better people out there. Why yeah. do you think that? And, and what do you think is wrong with the ones you did get? Can you quantify that? If you can't quantify what's wrong with what's happening now, then we can't possibly improve on it. <laughs> yeah. In any system, you get feedback that allows you to say, how do we make adjustments to make this better? In recruiting, we've built these systems that limit the feedback that come back to the people who are making those decisions. Consequently, we're making bad decisions and not realizing they could be better. But I think it's it's going to be unfairly different from employer to employer how fast you can measure quality. So if you're hiring salespeople to hit the phones and sell stuff from day one, you can measure quality pretty quickly. At the end of a month, how much are they sold? At the end of two months, how much are they sold? If you're hiring a trainee management consultant who you're going to train over the course of five years. When you're, hot, wait, when you're talking about raw potential. Yeah. I mean, you can't evaluate quality conceivably faster than three years. There is no way your feedback loop can be faster than that because you don't know when they turn up how good they're going to be. And the danger is if you start guessing how good they are, that's where unconscious bias creeps in, right? Totally. And it's the people with the right accent who look the right way and sound the right way. And it's really dangerous to start ascribing quality to things that are just I reckons. Exactly. They're not a valid measure of quality. And it's really dangerous from an EDNI point of view. All right. So what is your first killer question? Well, I mean, I've, I think we've done two or three of those there. I, okay, so a killer question for me would be every job, every job seeker I know, and every client I talk to, there's the, always this conversation about our culture as a business and our culture is great and people join us because they love our culture and the people who like working here love our culture. And there's always an awkward moment when I go, great, what is your culture? And they go, well, it's, you know, um, and, and sometimes they'll wheel off a value set and sometimes, and there are businesses that do have a really good culture definition out there. You know, I mean, there are businesses where you can find a thing where they go, yeah, this is a this is a document that everybody here reads and it's stuck on the wall. Like the Johnson & Johnson Credo is a good example. It's stuck on the wall in every meeting room. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Like they have a consistent definition of their culture. The Netflix culture deck. Exactly. Classic. So there are some ones out there where it, it does exist. But an awful lot of businesses, that isn't true. They've got a kind of vague idea. It's like, well, it's something to do with this and something to do with that. And, and, and they might be right. But if no one can define it, always the problem is, I sort of say to them, well, if your best selling point is your culture and everybody is describing it differently, every candidate is not clear why they should be joining you because the thing it says on the website is not the same as the thing that they hear when they speak to a recruiter, is not the same as the thing that they hear when they talk to a line manager. And all of those things might be good independently, but if they're different, they're gonna start doubting all of you. Yeah. And it's really worth, you know, so can you define your culture? I asked a room full of heads of talent acquisition this recently in the UK, and I think we had about 40 people in the room and two reckoned they could define their culture accurately. Wow. That's a big, that's a small number. So yeah. for me, I think I start with this, what is culture? And I, I love the idea of saying, everybody says, well, your colors, culture, your values are this, your mission's this, your culture is this. And they're so vague and fuzzy and they mean nothing to me. Values are things you think about and believe and believed to be true that shapes your behaviors because your culture is what you do when there's no rule to say otherwise, right? Yeah. When there's a rule that says, don't do that. No one does that because you do it, you get fired. But when there's not a rule, how do you behave? What are the behaviors that happen? 
right there. That is where culture lives. And that's a great kind of like fertile ground for you to start telling stories about your culture. Exactly. I mean, a good way, good way of coming at it is to think what's something that would happen at our company that wouldn't happen at one of the direct competitors or vice versa. What's something that, you know, we do that they wouldn't or that they do that we wouldn't. And somewhere in there is your culture. Like, and, and that's, that's a good question. Values are an interesting one. Every business has built its values for different reasons. Some businesses have built their values bluntly as a customer tool. So they're not about staff. They're not about staff to behaviors. They're about the way that you want to be seen by your customers or by end users. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong or misleading or anything like that, but that's what they're for. And indeed, sometimes they can be for governments or regulators in some industries that, they, that the values are to reassure the regulator that you are aware what the regulator wants you, wants you to do. And so you put safety in the values because that's what the regulator wants to see. But in some businesses, absolutely, the values are about who you're trying to be as an employer. Great, in which case you might well be able to use those. But it's naive to think that every value set is doing the same job because it definitely isn't. Yeah, I've, I've, I've literally worked at companies and no, I will not name names because this is not a name and shame kind of situation. Uh, <laughs> they had five values. They yeah. were, in fact, posters on a wall. One of those values was customers. Yeah. I... How is that a value? How, in what way is that a value? And how is that informing my behavior other than go get more? I mean, that's just, the, yeah. The, yeah. Exactly. I mean, and the giveaway is if you've got a value of excellence, because it's not like everyone's ever had a value of being rubbish or, or yeah. you know, so, yeah. and it's not wrong. Of course you want to have, so it's, it's not, it's not necessarily incorrect, but it's not going to help someone understand your culture, right? Because but does it, yeah, does it shape the behaviors every single day? Have, you know, Tom exactly. Peters goes to, you know, excellence is your next email, it's your next phone call, it's your next conversation. It's not one day, it's what are you doing right now? And, you know, excellence is an example of a value, how it can shape that behavior. But you're right, it, it, it's so easy to say things, yeah. what's real? And it, it's one of those questions where sometimes, you know, people go, oh, is this our EVP? And again, it's kind of like, will it, could be it depends how you've done your EVP you know yeah. and and you know you need an answer to this question I personally you know and we've had this talk before about you know you and I are not big fans of being super dogmatic about what anything is called as long as you've got things to do the jobs you need an answer to this question I don't mind if it's your EVP or your value set or something called something completely different or the company prayer or the company song it doesn't matter as long as you've got a thing that does this job yeah. and and if you don't have something that does that job, you, you can still do a good job at, but you are going to struggle every time, you know, this question gets asked, what's your culture like? Someone yeah, is going like, to give a different answer. And, yeah, it's, like, and, it's like racing a car with only three wheels and everybody else has four. It's just, you can get it around the track, but completely. it's going to be more complicated. It, exactly. And it just means you're constantly starting from scratch and everybody's having to work out this answer for themselves yeah. rather than actually, if you came up with a good one liner about who you are and what you believe in, it would make life easier for everyone. Um, but you'd be surprised how many places don't have that. No, I would not be surprised. Not, <laughs> not, not even as much. Maybe you wouldn't. Maybe yeah. some of our listeners would be surprised yeah. how many people don't have that. Um, but no, the, the, the real challenge there is how many people think they have that and how many people really yeah. have that. Because it's one of those situations where people think, ah, I know, I know what the culture is, you know, to your point earlier, if you, but can you describe it? Can you yes. nail it down? Is it something if I asked four other people in that company, would they give me something vaguely similar or would yeah. they have their own completely different answers? Completely. This year, one agency won more RAD awards for recruitment marketing, branding, and communications than any other, with work that has transformed the employer brand of some of the world's biggest companies. That agency might be a name you don't recognize yet. Stay tuned to learn more. 
So go on then. What's your, what's your next killer question? Okay, so this is a tough one because it's, it, it presumes things are working. And I think okay. when things are working, that is when you're in the most danger of messing it up, right? <laughs> yeah. When things are wrong, when things are breaking, you're looking for things to fix, to looking for things to get better. You're getting really good feedback that that's not working, that's not working, you're, and you're making changes, which is great. It's when things are going pretty well that you are you might as well go, where are the rocks I'm about to sail into? Because that's yeah. exactly what's about to happen. So my exactly. killer question is this, is your employer brand growth a function of your work or is it a halo effect of something else? Your stock price, your consumer brand, your corporate PR, new CEO, whatever that is. Is it actually something you're doing or are you a boat on a, on a rising tide that floats everybody? I think this is so true in the tech arena where you know, you've know you got a tech product that's new and cool and exciting and everybody wants to work there. Yeah. And the TA team might be doing a brilliant job, but they might not be. They might just be benefiting from the massive amounts of attention and PR. And that'll be okay until something goes wrong. And until, you know, either layoffs are made or the chief exec says something crazy because it's a startup and that can happen. And and then suddenly this halo effect disappears. And what are you going to do then? And how are you going to actually have to have to play the game for real now? I think you're so right. You can you can lull yourself into this idea that, oh, we're doing brilliantly and everything's fine. And actually, things are not fine. It's just that you've got a massive head start that you haven't realized you've got yet. And I think yeah, there's certainly been a number of employers who've been hit by that kind of hubris. And you know, really, what you ought to be doing strategically is when you're ahead, make the most of it, capitalize on it. You know, when, when a sport team starts winning, they don't relax. They go, well, how can we win every game? How can yeah. we score even more points? How can we go even faster? You know, that is exactly the point at which to slam your foot on the accelerator, not when you're in trouble. Yeah. And, and I think this is this is a mistake that a lot of people make. And it's the people at the top of the employer rankings or the people at the most desired employer lists and things. It's like, okay, but don't rest on your laurels. Now is the time to make the most of that. Why are you there? How can you leverage that now? How can you make sure no one ever comes and takes that off you? Yeah, my favorite example. It's a lot example. harder to get back there once you've lost it. Oh yeah, yeah, way harder, way harder. And my favorite example is Google, who I'm pretty sure has not spent more than four and a half cents on their employer branding work. It yeah. is all halo effect. It is all, we pay for your food and there's nap rooms and you know all the bells and whistles and perks they gave in the early aughts when they were really kind of, plant in a flag. That's been their whole brand. And yeah. what I love is the idea is that those ideas happened because they were trying to keep their workers in the building for longer. Here, have some dinner. Don't go home. Just yeah. stay here and code in your sleep. That's what we want. We want more productivity. And they spun it real well into look at all these wonderful perks. And that has been, you know, to the point where, you know, Google even said, we don't, you know, need to look for applications, they get thrown at us. And honestly, we don't even look at applications unless they come with a, a referral next to it. So it's, we've got too much to look at. Yes. You know, so they are a company that had such a great halo effect and everybody, you know, and how many times, here's a great question. How many times have you been in a room and you've pitched an idea or they've seen a challenge and someone in the room goes, well, what does Google do? Like yeah. it, how many times, like I've been there at least a dozen times. And the truth is, this is not where Google lives. This is not what their expertise is. They are great because you know them, because you use Gmail, because you search for stuff, because you use Absolutely. the map, all this other stuff. It's, it's that ubiquity is a massive advantage for them. But actually, when they hit challenging times and, you know, people started ask, asking questions about the culture internally at Google, they didn't know how to react because they hadn't really ever thought about that stuff. But no, their HRPR was fantastic. You know, they did. They worked so hard to get 
all the magazines talking about what it's like to work at Google. They didn't need to run a job ad. I think the, you know, that that sort of conversation with the, with the clients when they go, what does Google do? My response is always, no, you need to do something better because you don't have their ubiquity. So actually you have to play this game better than them. Mm -hmm. they, they can they can get away with with not having to work as hard as you because I see their logo, you know, goodness knows how many times per day, every time I pick my phone up, I see their logo. Unless you also have that level of, of kind of valency in my life, you need to do a better job than them. So and I that's really challenging. Yeah. So I suspect you're a fan of Byron Scott's, this idea of how brands grow and it starts with availability and ubiquity. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I think certainly when it comes to, to jobs, there's a thing of, you know, how immediately obvious are you as an employer to all sorts of people? So like when I finished an engineering degree, there were some obvious people I could go and work with because they were engineering firms I'd heard of and I'd had lectures about projects they'd done. And there were people who made electrical devices that I had in my house and they were available. You know, and there were some obvious employers. And then there were a whole bunch that I'd never heard of that were actually going to be just as good an employer, but I never run across them because they're B2B brands. And I think particularly B2B brands have to work a lot harder here, um, especially in the early talent audience, because you, you, you have zero visibility at all. Um, and these are typically where a lot of the best employer branding work happens is in B2B brands because they have to. You know, if you are an EY or a Deloitte, you have to work harder than Google. There's no question. Absolutely. All right, what's your next killer question? So I suppose I have a killer question that is kind of to do with your messaging and oh. whether anybody's actually believing it. Uh, so that was my next one. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> but this is where I have a, I have a problem that, that some people in the industry know because they've heard me talk about this before. I have a problem with the word authenticity because I think we get distracted by the word authenticity and what, what, the, what people hear is, is our stuff true? And I go, that's nice, but it's not what matters. What matters is, is it believable? You can tell something that isn't true, but is believable and it will work. And you can tell something that's absolutely true, but if it's not believable, it's gonna have no cut through at all. The example I've used in the past, and you know, I don't wanna um, pick on them by name perhaps, but there's, there's a massive, huge tech employer that we all know and we all use definitely who, you know, I've used this as an example before because they set up all these ambassadors, but the ambassadors said things that weren't very believable. Like one of them, um, I still remember, there was a picture of her at their headquarters pointing up to customer obsession written on the wall saying, when you see your favorite leadership behavior, and it was, you know, pointing to customer obsession. And I sort of used this in a talk I did a while ago saying, now I know people who have a favorite leadership behavior. So I actually, I believe that might be true, but most people don't know someone who has a favorite leadership behavior. So it doesn't matter if it was true or not, that's not believable. Someone should have intercepted her and said, hey, that's brilliant and lovely, but maybe that's not the one that we should post on Instagram. Because the audience out there on Instagram, that they're not gonna believe that. So it doesn't actually matter anymore if it was true or not. And, you know, actually we're fine with stories even that we know aren't true, as long as they're interesting, you know, parables and myths and, let, you know, they're, they're absolutely fine. You'd be better off telling a, a, a thing. I, I use, quite often use the Stephen Colbert phrase of truthiness. You know, something truthy is much better than something true because now I'm prepared to absorb it. And if you're, I, I don't think enough people think hard enough about not just what do I want my messaging to be, but what's the version of that that people is, someone is actually prepared to believe? Yeah. And I will do one last bit before I hand over to you, which is your proof point document is not it. 
right? And, and it never is. There is always a proof point document that doesn't work. And it doesn't work because facts don't convince anyone of anything, right? And, and unfortunately they don't. It's stories that work to convince people of things. And you know, a big pile of numbers and dates and things like that is not gonna convince anyone that things that you're saying are true, especially if it's anything to do with culture. If I'm gonna believe that you're an inclusive employer, no amount of percentage of people who've been on an unconscious bias training is going to convince me that true. It's a person saying, I've had a brilliant time here and everyone's treated me decently, is way more convincing than any percentage or fact or number or budget that you could ever give me. Yeah. So I think loads of you would do really well to have a think about looking at this really brutally, how believable is what I'm saying? And yeah. where it's not, how could I make it more believable? In a certain way, you know, and having been in-house for a couple of brands on in employer bread, it's really hard to do the job in-house because you always have to have one foot out the door. Yeah. You always have to think of how does a stranger who's never heard this brand, who hasn't bought into this brand, how are they going to perceive this information? And you're right. Stuff like this is my favorite leader. What? Oh, it's like, just give me the Kool-Aid already. You sound like a cult. You sound insane. You know, I, I, uh, good for you that you found a place where your particular brand of insanity has fit in, and that's fantastic. Yeah. But you sound like a crazy person. Uh, so my version of this question, which I think is actually kind of the flip side, it's what evidence, evidence do you have that the people actually believe anything you say? Because <laughs> so much of recruiting is throw a claim out there, throw a claim out there, throw a claim out there, and for me. I separate them into subjective and objective values. And the idea is, yeah. look, your objective value is this is what you're going to get paid. This is what your salary, you know, your, your title. This is when your start date yep. is. The stuff in the offer letter, the stuff that should you have lied in this, somebody's going to jail. That's called felony fraud. Yeah, yeah. But when the recruiter says, we're a really supportive environment, and you show up and it looks all cutthroat, and you're like, wait a second, I thought you said this yeah. is really supportive. And the response is always the same. Well. And you're like, their voice gets really high, their, their head tilts a little bit, and they go, well, the way we think of it, and you're like, it's all spin. And the answer is, if you're going to make a strong claim in a subjective area, and I highly recommend you do, otherwise it's just a game of money, yep. you got to prove it like 10 times more than one of the objective values. You, if, you, if you care about support, show it 10 different ways. Show different people talking about it in different manners, in different Absolutely. fashions. And, all that stuff. And once you get that, and that's, so yours is more of an intentionality. What do you want to be honest and real about? What do you want people to start to truly believe? And mine is, how do you make them believe that? Completely. And, and accepting the grim truth that the way that you say convince some people is going to be different to the way you convince others. So, you know, if I'm joining you at a very senior level and I need to believe that your business has a good direction for the future, I want to hear someone very, very senior talking me through the business strategy. Whether that's happening in person or whether that's happening through a video, that's what's going to convince me that this thing is good. Um, whereas if someone's joining at the front line as an apprentice or a graduate, that I'm not watching that. That's not written for me. It's not interesting. Actually, I'd rather have someone roughly my age go, yeah, the people in charge seem to know what they're doing. And that's probably enough. You know, it, 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 that's that's the level at which it needs to be explained to me. And this, and so like, even if you're saying the same thing, you might need to find lots of different ways of saying it that are going to be credible and believable to different levels and, and understandable at different levels. And it's highly unlikely that one version is going to work for everyone. It can happen if you've got a really charismatic leader who has like some personal kind of credibility. Absolutely, you could maybe get that person to explain it to everyone. But that's going to be the exception rather than the rule. And I think it's it's something that isn't given nearly enough thought. And I'm, I do start, it is where I do start to worry about people using sort of generative text engines to, to try and solve some of this is 
generative text does a brilliant job of the average answer. Very but good. it's not, you know, you can make it do more more specific things, but it starts to get more and more flaky because the inputs into it are less good and it depends on how skilled you are at correcting it. But, yeah. you know, you, you I think everyone does need to think about, you know, it's not just what I would like to say, even if everyone's agreed on that, is how do I say that in such a way that my audience are going to believe me? Because actually saying something that isn't credible is, is almost worse than saying nothing at all because now, yeah. now you look like you're a liar and that's, yeah. that's not a great start to get off to yeah, with I, somebody you want to employ. Totally. I did an experiment on, on, on the chat GPT thing and I said, write a job posting for a, an average employer brander. Yeah. And I said, now make it an exciting one. And it, in, like it took the exact same thing and threw a whole bunch of adjectives. Right? Now yeah. make it, now make it sound like this is the place you want to work if you care about status. And it just inserted new words. Yeah. But if I were to say, make one designed for the executives it wouldn't know what to say. And if I said, make it for the entry level, it's like, how does that differ? It doesn't understand those things. No, exactly. And you know, it's limited by what inputs it's got in. And you could train it to do that. I've no doubt that there are going to be major, major breakthroughs, you know, as these, you know, as with any technology, as we get smarter at using it, as we start adapting it for more specific uses, undoubtedly, these, these are all things that can be resolved. But it, it's kind of, it, it, it's such a huge issue that I think people spend enormous amounts of time and money deciding what they want to say and not nearly enough time and money thinking about, yeah, yeah, but how is our audience prepared to believe that? There's a wonderful line. Um, I quite often recommend people read um, Hagakuri, The Way of the Samurai, which is a, a an old Japanese book by a retired samurai about how one should be a good servant to one's master in feudal Japan. There's a marvellous line in the middle of it when he says, before saying something to one's master, one must consider very carefully how predisposed he is to hear it. And, and actually, it works for sort of internal politics of, you know, how are you reporting things to your superiors? But actually, it works for audiences as well. You've got to think about, if I'm going to tell you this thing, are you ready to believe me on it? Now, if you're a tech company and you want to say we're innovative, yeah, fine, I'll believe you, you're innovative, that that, that feels believable. You, you don't need to justify that. You're a tech startup, you're innovative. Yeah, fine, all right, taken, done, tick. Whereas if you're saying we're a tech startup that has amazing respect for work-life balance, we're never going to expect you to work outside nine to five, I'm going to go, really? Yeah. You're going to, you're going to need to work very, very, very hard to convince me there because you're now conflicting with my gut instinct. So that's a really interesting kind of juxtaposition of, 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 of forces. So first off, yeah. the more you say stuff that is assumed, hey, we're a tech company, startup, we're innovative, yeah. the easier it is to prove, but the less different you are. The yeah, more I mean, you push it the other way and say, we're a tech startup and we're all about work-life balance. That's so like, really? You got to work really hard to prove it. But the second you do, you're already yeah. off on your own space. I mean, I, I still think there's a place to, for saying the obvious things for two reasons, right? The first reason to say the obvious things is if you don't, you're handing over that territory to your competitors. So yes. if I don't say we're innovative, it might look like we're not. So it's worth just saying, yeah, of course we are. So that you don't, you haven't surrendered that to your competitors for talent. Yeah. The second reason is you're now telling me something that I believe is true and you're telling me that it's true. Okay, you're now starting to build up yeah. my trust in you and by telling me things that I believe in. Whereas if you only hit me with the stuff that I'm not expecting, it's going to be very hard for me to believe you. So it's not a bad thing to say those things. You don't want to waste too much time and energy on it, though. You, you know, you can use it to leverage in. Okay, now I've bought someone's trust by telling them something that they know is true. I can now give them something that they weren't expecting to hear from me. 
and uh, you know, I've bought a bit of time to justify it and to explain it to them and say, actually, what will surprise you is we're also this. And, and I think that's, that's a way of looking at it. So, you know, certainly when I'm looking at a messaging model, you know, I, I quite often look at it in that way and go, right, for the audience, how much of this is a surprise? Yeah. If all of it's a surprise, I mean, we're going to have loads of fun as an ad agency if everything's a surprise. That's great. That's a great brief for us. But it's quite hard for that audience to believe you. If nothing in it is a surprise, why are we bothering to communicate at all? You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I'm not sure what we're doing here. Yeah. And in, in, most of the time, it should be somewhere between the two. There should be some things in there that are a bit unexpected or surprising and some things in there which, which really aren't. And it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and that's no bad thing. Meet 33, known for creating and elevating some of the world's most valuable employer brands here in the U.S. and across the pond in Europe, 33 understands that everyone has a story to tell. From KFC to BMW, from AWS to KPMG, 33 has been building some of the most creative and influential employer brands around the world. If you want to see how they can tell your company's story, head to their website in our show notes. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that leads to my next killer question, which is, is this thing you're about to do, whether it's messaging, whether it's a yep. strategy, whether it's a channel development, whatever that thing is, does this support the idea that you're either a most or an only? Either you are the most innovative, you are the yeah. most supportive, you are the most, I don't care, or you're the, you know, you're the only law firm in town that cares about work-life balance. You're the only tech company that cares about status. You're the, like, what, how is... You can't do both strategies, but generally, the more you think about most versus only, the more you're going to push yourself in a spot where you're truly developing that differentiated value. And so much of employer brand and talent strategy work ends up being just generate, 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 put it out, put it out, put it out, fill yeah. in the gaps. But is it thinking about, is this supporting the, the strategy of am I a most or an only? Yeah, no, I like that. And I think, you know, I think you can use it more widely than communications as well. You know, so... For example, okay, if you wanted to differentiate yourself, you could be the the most speedy respondent to applicants, or you know, but you've got a thing that you can point at and go, yeah, I'm the most this or the only that, and then yeah, you can differentiate yourself, and it might be a most or only within the messaging and the positioning, but it could equally be a most or only within the process mm -hmm. and within the experience, and a most or only there might work. And one thing I talk about sometimes with clients where you're where you're doing what I would call slow recruitment, i.e. it's over a number of phases in a program like grads or apprentices or any kind of program where there are a number of phases over a period of time. You probably don't need to win at stage one. You need to win by the end. Yeah. So actually, you don't need to win at the point at which they're applying to people because unless they're very arrogant, they're applying to more than one. So you only need to sort of be in the hunt at that point where you need to win is when they come in for final interviews, right? And that, that's the point at which you want to be the number one choice is when they've had their interviews. So you could save a lot of your budget and firepower for later on and win it there. You don't necessarily have to win it at the marketing stage. It is a place where you can get ahead though. There's no question about that. Yeah. And I think that that sort of, that idea of, I mean, the other good killer question when it comes to differentiation is, you know, when you've kind of, you've got everything planned out and you're about to sort of go, yep, yeah, this is what we're going with. You go, brilliant. Could we stick your biggest competitor's logo on this and would they sign it off? That's right. a great and, one. And it, it's the classic advertising test. And, you know, this used to happen in ad agencies, you know, before they showed Coke, the big new campaign for Coke, they put their hand over it and go, could we sell it to Pepsi? If we could, it's wrong. 
and 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 it's not a bad test whoever you particularly if you're in a sector where there are some obvious competitors you know which you know if you're a law firm or an accountancy firm or a management it's pretty obvious who your immediate competitors are put your hand over it and go could the competitors do it and if they could it's it might still be okay but yeah. it's not going to be great it's it's not going to do anything dramatic yeah i was talking to a to a it's a series of, of healthcare companies concern and they were showing me some of their nursing ads yeah. and I'm like, the problem with this is one, it's stock art. So don't do that. You let me, you're literally not even showing me your own company. You're showing yeah. me a generic company Two, You're not saying anything. And I said, one of the, my favorite examples of a nurse ad was a pair of, it's a picture of a pair of shoes that looked like it had been through, thrown through a wood chipper. Yeah. And the caption was simply this nurse's shoes are one month old. Wow, and I yeah. said, it's look, Nurses do the exact same job wherever they go, right? They're not like making sweaters someplace or making sushi someplace else. They're nurses. They do the same thing. The differences are so subtle. And in yep. that case, what I saw was it's not that they were offering something different. What they were saying was we understand a nursing perspective better than anybody else because this isn't a thing that I would have thought of because I'm not a nurse. They were saying we speak nurse in a way, in a depth, in a fluency Completely. that no one else was talking about. So it doesn't require radical positioning sometimes. No. Sometimes it's simply to your point, what's, is, what's the one spot you can pick to say, this is the way we're going to differentiate, even if it's subtle, you know, in the big picture of the things, if it matters to the person you're speaking to, it matters. Completely. I think in every sector and in every profession, there is a spot for someone to grab the empathy positioning. And the empathy position is to go, yeah, we get it. The rest of them are all lying to you, but we get it. My, my favorite one, and forgive me if I mentioned this on a previous one, I don't think I've mentioned this before, is years ago, there was an Australian IT firm that was advertising for Java developers. But the headline of their ad said, mediocre developers wanted. And, and, and the whole land was built on the premise, everyone else is hiring the rock stars. I mean, to be frank, I don't think we can afford the rock stars. But if you want to have a nice time and have pizza at five on a Friday, come and join us. We're all quite good. And it, it went viral. I saw this yeah. ad in London, despite the fact they were recruiting in Melbourne or Sydney or somewhere. But the reason it went viral is because it's how all IT developers feel about the ads that ask for rock stars. And they tuned in to the, the you know, you're reading it going, this was written by the IT team, not by a recruiter. And that's why it works. Because they got at that point of, yeah, this is what it's really like, though, isn't it? Come on now. And it's done with a bit of a smile and a wink. Australian advertising is brilliant for this, actually. Australian advertising and Dutch advertising are both really good at, at kind of like mocking the whole construct of advertising and kind of getting around the edge of it and going, but come on, it's this really, isn't it? Yeah. And if you can do it well, and you can do it with a nod and a smile, it's incredibly effective, especially if you're in a sector that is full of maximalist language, where everyone is making a difference and having an impact and achieving their potential and fulfilling their purpose. And, you know, if all of the language is very, very full, there is yeah. a brave position to be had by going, oh, come on, some of us are just doing a job. Yeah. And, and it will work. Yeah, so much trying to develop. So you're talking about this idea of what's the insight? What is the thing yeah. we can be talking about? And one of my favorite tricks of getting someone to kind of shift their perspective is say, what's the trope that everybody is using that we can flip? Or yeah. what is the thing that you absolutely hate that everybody does? If yeah. you can write that down, you have just yes. found the spot to flip it and say something that is so meaningfully different. To your point, we, you know, I, we don't want rock stars because everybody wants rock stars. We want something different. 
And because honestly, if you say you hate that whole rock star joke, I mean, who was it that was it Salesforce who just did or Oracle or somebody just did a big ad campaign of no rock stars because they're you know they actually brought in rock stars, musicians, uh, as the joke. It's like, yeah, we get it. We get it. So I think finding the, the thing that every, the trope, the, the, the stupid thing that we've become blind to, that yeah. is a great spot to find an insight. Exactly. Or, or something, you know, something that shows people like you are, you're kind of one of them and you get their world and you get their joke, you know? So if I was trying to do something really, you know, insightful to, um, to nick my to nick competitor people from my direct competitors to come and work for 33 i'd probably do something riffing off timesheets and how vital timesheets are because they're the bane of every ad agency yes. everyone in an ad agency hates filling out timesheets it's the least creative activity in the world it's very important i'm sure but like it's the thing that everybody hates so if i tuned into that i'm immediately connecting with them whereas if i talk about something very laudable about creativity and helping employees of choice you know it's never going to connect yeah. with them yeah. because it's what everyone says Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I think we've got great killer questions. Is there anything, can we end with one thing you think people should think about or do when the next time they're faced with a challenge? So I suppose there are, one thing I would strongly recommend, if you ever get really, really struck, stuck, a thing I occasionally use is a thing called oblique strategies. Have you ever run across oblique strategies? You're a Brian Eno fan. Of course you're a Brian Eno fan. Of course right. you are. So it's the most left field thing in the world, but for anybody who doesn't know, the musician Brian Eno came up with this weird sort of process actually for making music, um, but actually it applies just as well to business. And a bleak strategy. You've got to name drop David Bowie in this process. If you don't, you're just leaving money on the table. Well, absolutely. But, but it's, it, and they're available online and they're just some really good questions to ask yourself, you know, that, that can sometimes just break you out of the way that you've got stuck and you know and some of them aren't going to be remotely appropriate to employ branding but some of them really are and it's, it's amazing how often they have helped me when I've been you know particularly if I've been pitching to a new client who I don't know very well I just flick through oblique strategies until I go oh what if I did that and that's a, it it's a good kind of um way of unsticking yourself the other one I sometimes use though that's my own personal addition to that is what would really annoy the competition? What is something I can think of that would really annoy the competition if I did it? And sometimes you shouldn't do it because it's going to annoy them. But it, it's funny how like that puts your brain in a different place, a slightly mischievous and naughty place. 100%. Sometimes produces a more interesting idea than a very, you know, worthy and objective focused and, and kind of, uh, you know, um, straightforward way of doing things. So I think try and kind of get your brain into a different mode and yeah oblique strategies would be my top tip how about yourself what would you suggest i i, and I cannot more endorse uh both oblique strategies and brian Eno. i can't listen to his music for very long but i adore the man he's got a yeah. he did a uh, he wrote a diary for a year in 1995 it's fascinating it's yeah, yeah. delightful i personally believe that music producers and employer branders have so much to learn from each other because they both they're, neither of them are in positions to make the change, but yes. they're both in positions to influence and nudge others to create change. Like the Rick Rubin book that just came out, um, another music producer, Great. all about this idea of how do you nudge people in the right direction to create and get them to think in a, in a, in a different way. My kind of like, here's the thing to do next time is, this is going to sound crazy, think of the dumbest thing to do. 
Yeah. Like, like what's the thing that is – that would be stupid. You'd be an absolute fool to do it. Now take a beat and justify it. Find a wake because it forces your brain yes. to not reject the standard stuff and start to say, how do I make that happen? What's what's a thing that by doing this, somebody's going to say, you're crazy because that is amazing territory for you to start to say things that have not been said, that connect to your audience. Suddenly someone's going to say, I thought that too. I thought I was the only one. And when you can get someone to have that moment – they are yours. Exactly. It's, it's that old phrase, isn't it? The outside the box solution. And it's kind of like, we all hate the phrase. But actually, if you can go properly outside the box, in fact, this is so far outside the box, it's not even on the same planet. Yeah. It, it can sometimes, even though you're not going to do it, it can sometimes get you out. But hang on a minute, there's a non-silly version of that. There exactly. is actually, a, there's a grain of an idea in there. And I think it's a way of accessing your subconscious brain and kind of getting into that thing that's lurking way back here is, you know, what would be silly? What would be funny? What would be provocative? What would be, you know, it gets you out of the normal business mode of thinking, which is I need to do this thing by 5 p.m. and put it in a PowerPoint, which makes you think in very straightforward and sensible ways. And, and yes. sometimes that does produce good answers, but... Sometimes you need to snap yourself out of it. Yeah, no, PowerPoint's are great to fill in the gaps. It's not, it's, it has no value as an inspirational tool. No, no, no. Yeah, no, all right, that, th that feels like a great way to, to end it. Uh, Marcus, thanks as always, and uh, we'll, we'll talk next week. Indeed, see you then. Cheers. Up. Thanks for listening to The Brand Plan. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd spread the word. 